0: In today's world, where we can access our offices and apartments by simply typing a code into a keypad or swiping or tapping a card, a keychain full of keys is quickly becoming a relic of a bygone era. But in New York's Greenwich Village, one key-related establishment is still going strong. Greenwich Locksmiths has been a staple in the neighborhood for decades.
1: The stories that are interesting or the stories that are going to stick in your mind is like when somebody's dead in an apartment or something like that. You've got to go open the apartment.
0: I'm George Bodarkey and this is Cityscape. This week, locks and keys. Greenwich Locksmiths bills itself as the oldest locksmith shop in Greenwich Village, and among the oldest in Manhattan. I caught up with owner Philip Mortolero and his son, Philip Jr., at their long-established shop.
1: My name is Philip Mortolero. Uh, I'm a locksmith, the uh, owner of Greenwich Locksmiths in Greenwich Village, New York. And I've been here for 38 years.
0: 38 years. First of all, what inspired you to become a locksmith?
1: I was very young when I decided to become a locksmith, and I didn't really decide. It just happened. Um, I, I was looking for a summer job when I was like 14 years old, and there was a locksmith shop that had a sign in the window that they needed help for the you know summer just the they were moving from one place to another. They wanted a hand moving everything over. So I worked with them for the summer. I came in every day. I was on time. And uh, the owner of the shop said, "You know, if you wanted to work after school, if you want to continue this, um, so I did. And, and, and I kind of liked it. I was watching all the stuff they would do, and it was kind of interesting. They worked on safes and they worked on locks, and there was a lot, of lot going on."
0: Where did you grow up?
1: Well, I I was born on Elizabeth Street, but then we moved to Astoria, uh, and then I was working on 53rd Street and Second Avenue. And I always stayed in Manhattan. I always liked Manhattan. What
0: do you like most about Greenwich Village, and why did you set up shop here? Oh.
1: Greenwich Village, you know, it's laid back. I mean, I could have easily had a shop in, in Midtown, uh, like where I worked was a certain place. You know, where everything was very fancy. You, know, you had to go through a service entrance. I liked Greenwich Village. It was more real. Now Greenwich Village has become very, you know, affluent. You still got to go through the service entrance when you go into to building. So I guess you can't get away from it. Yeah, I was
0: going to ask you, what changes have you seen personally here in this neighborhood all of, over all of these years?
1: Well, Greenwich Village was a low-rent place at one time, and it's not that way anymore, that's for sure. So when I came here, You know, it it was because I can get an apartment for $160 a month where my cousin uptown on on York Avenue, his apartment was, you know, twice what I was paying. He was paying like almost $400. That was crazy back then. So this was, you know, so if you were going to be an artist or whatever you're going to be, that's why everybody came to the village. They came to the village because it was cheap.
0: A lot of mom and pops today struggle to keep up with rent. Has that been a challenge for you in this space?
1: There are no more mom and pop places. They're pretty much all gone. I own this place, otherwise I wouldn't be here too. Anybody that's been paying rent is finished. this I guess it just happens, man. it's this maybe I'm getting old, I don't know, but it's not it's not the place isn't how it used to be, that's for sure.
0: You referenced artists. Is there an art to being a locksmith? Well,
1: locksmithing is an art. There there are all types of locksmithing. You know, there are people that go out there and change a lock on a door and that's okay. But I, I work on locks that are, you know, three or four hundred years old and make all these fancy keys for the churches i do grace church uh, trinity church i I made keys for a lot of cathedrals uptown and uh, also the one out in jersey so you know i I do a lot of the old stuff so that's more of an art you
0: also know how to crack a safe don't you well i'm a
1: very good safe cracker and um, i've worked on safes uh, because i know there were times when i left new york i went out west for a while. And the only work I was going to get was safe work because, it was, uh, you know, you get government work and stuff like that. And uh, same thing like when I was in, back in the city, you know, it was all banks and also government work, a lot of government work uh, for the safes. Um, safes are a thing of the past. People aren't doing anything with safes. There's no more cash. Cash is finished. It's going to be all credit cards very soon. How many keys would you say you make
0: here in any given day?
1: Well, how many keys I make is... Um, it depends. I mean, you know, one building can come in and say, make, you know, we need 200 bathroom keys. So that, that would, you know, really up the sales for the day. But I, I guess, you know, we cut at least a few hundred a day easily, probably more than that. Do you ever get used to the
0: sound while you're making a key?
1: Well, that noise that you hear on the key machine used to bug the hell out of me. It really bothered me. And um, I said to myself, damn, you know, there's two things that are going on here I am like. I don't like the filings because they stick into your skin. I didn't like the sound. But, you know, after a while, the skin just got tougher where I didn't get any more, and, and my ears just tuned out the, uh, that, that screeching sound like, you know, putting your fingernails on a blackboard, kind of. That's what it is.
0: Now, this is also a family business, right? You work with your
1: son, am I correct? Yes. My son and I work here, and my wife as well. My wife puts, works uh, about three days a week, and my son works uh, five days a week here. Was it
0: expected that your son would come to work here?
1: Uh, no, I, I sent my son to Pace University and spent a lot of money. I, if I knew he was going to come into this, I wouldn't have sent him there. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's this, but it's nice. It's nice where I get to work with my son every day. And you gotta realize when we when we picked him up from St. Vincent's Hospital, here's here's where he came. So he's been here since he was born, pretty much.
2: Hi, uh, my name is uh, Philip Mortolaro Jr., um, the son of Philip Mortellaro. I Guess you'd say I'm the next generation of Greenwich locksmiths. Yeah. I'm, literally been here since i was a kid you know grew up in the neighborhood and you know, here i am
1: my son grew up in a locksmith shop. that's for sure he was born on thompson street and now he, st- he still lives over on thompson street except over on one block over from where he was born
0: what would you say people would be most surprised about related to the work that you do as a locksmith
1: you know to, to be a locksmith it, it encompasses so much because let's say if you're going to be a safe mechanic well then you know, that's a whole other part of it. And then there's locksmithing, real locksmithing. We do master key systems. That that's so, there's, there's so much to know if you're going to do... Like, my son does a lot of the electronic stuff. He does a lot of coding also. So he makes the key fobs and, and all that stuff, and and um, which I don't know about because I know nothing about any of the IT stuff.
2: This industry is going completely towards that. Not sort of towards it, completely towards that. And so it's so funny, like, all these little projects I'd be working on for myself for no reason other than my own satisfaction I realized could be directly applied to the security industry and I mean you know I I've always been a lo- I've always identified as a locksmith from the very beginning and I probably always would no matter what I did but realizing that I could like not just go into this but go into this as a specialist yeah that was cool
0: I was going to ask the question, how has that affected your business, the fact that people can just punch into a door? They don't need, actually, a physical key.
1: People don't even need to be able to punch into a lock. They can just walk up to it with their phone. And by their phone being close to the door, if it's, if it's all dialed in right, we'll open the door. Um, you're going to see things change. In the next decade, you're not going to believe how things are going to change. Not just in this industry, every industry. I mean, I hope everybody's ready for the changes because the changes are going to be fast and not good for a lot of people.
0: What about you? It sounds like you need to keep up with the times as well. Your son certainly is doing that.
1: Well, well, for myself, you know, I'm getting close to 70. So, I mean, in a decade, it's probably not going to be working anyhow. But you have to understand, the first couple of industrial revolutions we had, they made, let's say, the key machine, right? The key machine needed me. The new industrial revolution you have doesn't need me. The key machine will make the key by itself. That's 3D printing will also do it. Eventually, down the road, 3D printers are in their infancy. People expected too much for them too soon, but they do work, and it's gonna happen.
2: There's certain advantages to mechanical locks, just the way there's advantages to sailboats versus powered boats. You don't see as many sailboats, but they're still out there because they have certain advantages. Um, I think mechanical locks are the same way. Uh, Absolutely can't be hacked. Uh, They can't be sniffed or traced or any of these things that are now new problems digitally. That, that you can't avoid no matter what. It's gonna go from pretty much everyone having a key to a key being a special thing that you have. You know, it's gonna be the opposite. It's basically electronics being the novelty now. The, the mechanical keys will be the novelty. Um, yeah, they, they have their advantages. It's, it's sad that I won't be cutting keys one day is sad, yeah. <laughs> what would you say is one of your fondest memories of being here at this locksmith uh-huh. shop? fondest memories here, geez, there's, you know, No you know it sounds cliche, there's like so many of them, probably, I don't know about memories here, because any time I can sit here and kind of just hang out with my dad and talk is, is always good, we were talking about that the other day, like, my happy place is really when he's here, I'm here, there's not too many customers, like, there'll be every once in a while, and we can just, like, sit here and talk about life, like, that's nice but i mean we've been on some like really cool jobs man i mean like opening up safes you know for very crazy high end stuff yeah that that's there's been some safe openings that were very that i'll remember forever just because of you know what was going on and who was involved yeah absolutely the
1: stories that are interesting or the stories that are going to stick in your mind is like when somebody's dead in an apartment or something like that and you got to go open the apartment and those are always sad items especially if there's family members on the other waiting to try to find their person who's not answering the phone. So yeah, those those, those happen a few times out here, more, more times than I like to say. As far as interesting goes, uh, I, I did a job for um, the Army Corps of Engineers. I opened up a safe, a vault that was over in the uh, Navy building on, on Church Street. And and it was, I found out later on this big vault that was on the 14th floor was part of the Manhattan Project. So that's where they kept the documents.
0: The subway rumbles right under your shop. Ever get used to it?
1: Well, all the noise in the... I'm half deaf, and the reason I'm half deaf is because of all the noise between the traffic, between the subway, between you know this New York being a noisy city. But here it's extra noisy, and for some reason, this place because it's shaped like a triangle, this scoops up all the noise. It comes right into the shop. I mean, it's crazy. And I live across the street, so I never get away from the rumble. The rumble is always on there. When I go out to Jersey, it's too quiet. I can't sleep.
0: For a guy who deals with keys all the time, have you received a key
1: to the city? I have never personally received a key to the city. But in my window, there's a real key to the city from Wagner, not to me, to whoever they gave it to and somebody sold it to me.
0: I see you're being honored by the Greenwich Village Society for Historical Preservation.
1: Well, yeah, I'm very honored that uh, that they did this. Man, this is like such a... I couldn't believe it. You know, I said, why, why me? But I'm nothing special. You're a piece of New York City history okay.
0: that continues.
1: Well, I'm certainly a piece of New York City history, and I love this place all out of proportion.
0: <laughs> well, I've walked past the shop many times, so it's an honor for me to have the opportunity awesome. to talk
2: to the people behind it. Oh, of course, man. You stop by any time Absolutely.
0: For more information on Greenwich Locksmiths, check them out online at GreenwichLocksmiths.com. Now on to a place that holds the key to some of the history of locks in our nation. The Lock Museum of America is located in Terryville, Connecticut. On the phone with me now is curator Tom Hennessy. So, Tom, what inspired the establishment of the Lock Museum of America?
3: Actually, it was my father um, and a group of people in Terryville got together. Once the Eagle Lock factory closed, they decided to try to keep the history of the um, Eagle Lock in town. And so they decided to create a museum with all the salesman samples that were left at Eagle Lock.
0: So what is the history of the Eagle Lock factory?
3: Eagle Lock started in 1830 and producing trunk locks, padlocks, uh, drawer locks. And they had a whole line of stuff for the post office.
0: And they were supplying the nation, essentially, with their locks? Yes. Your dad loved locks. No question about that,
3: huh? Yes, he loved them. He actually has uh, quite a few patents in his name. He was a keying system engineer. Actually, he did the keying system for the World Trade Center.
0: For the original World Trade Center, the Twin Towers. Yes. What did he love about locks?
3: I he just the, the mechanisms, you know, just the different types of intricacies of the of the workings of the locks.
0: And was that love of locks passed on to you?
3: Yes. I like um take a look at cutaways. Cutaways are locks that are, the outside of the lock is cut open so you can see how the internal workings work. And... Uh, you can get a very good idea on how the how the locks operate by looking at those types of locks.
0: How intricate are locks? I mean, is it a very difficult process in terms of what goes on inside? We can't see what goes on inside there.
3: Well, there's there's some, like if you have a a, a bank lock, it's very intricate inside the lock. But then there's also um, padlocks, which some of the mechanisms could be like a, a warded lock or uh, a lever lock. And... Some are, you know, the newer ones are pin tumbler, but the older ones, um, the workings weren't that difficult to pick or um, bypass.
0: I would imagine you pretty much have locks of every variety at the museum.
3: We do. We have um, early colonial locks, and there are, everything we have in the museum is um, at least 100 years old. And, and some are much older. We have some armada chests. We have a few safes. A lot of bank locks, time locks, and a good assortment of padlocks, ornate hardware, the ornate doorknobs, escutcheon plates.
0: How many locks would you say are in the collection?
3: Probably about 40,000.
0: Wow, 40,000 locks. And were these locks that your dad collected himself?
3: It was, um, it was a group effort. A lot of people have donated through the years. We have the Eagle Locks collection. We have the Corbin Russman collection. Um, we have uh, a room dedicated to Yale, another section dedicated to Sargent, and then we have uh, a an antique room, which which is all uh, very early European stuff, door hardware padlocks.
0: You mentioned that you're interested in lock history. What is it about the history of locks that fascinates you most?
3: Well, just there's so many different companies out there. Some are have. A, broader history than others, but uh, it's probably just the history of the, the, you know, the the men that started all these companies, like the James Sargent started Sergeant, Linus Yale started Yale, Philip Corbin started Corbin, Um, and, you know, the list could just keep going on and on.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you the question, who are among the most notable names in lock history? I guess you just named a couple. Are there others?
3: Well, there's there's, uh, quite a few. I mean, uh, even in Brooklyn... uh, um, New York. Uh, they, there was um, Wilson Bohannon and um, Johnson Rotary was another lock company in, in Brooklyn. And, and even in Newark, they had quite a few H.C. Uh, Jones, Romer. That list can just go on and on and on. But there's a, there's a lot of history in New York City and uh, in Newark and in the New Jersey area and the Connecticut area in lock making.
0: So what do you hope visitors to your museum take away? What's the ultimate goal?
3: Well, just that they can appreciate that it. it's almost like the artwork that went into these locks is amazing. I mean, if you look at an early bank lock, the inside of the lock is all detailed and, and um, it looks good to the eye. But it's, it's, if it was installed on a door, you would never see it. I mean, they just uh, they really took care in what they did. And, uh just I, I just hope that they can appreciate the efforts that went into um, making all these products. And I you can just tell how proud they were of their work just by the detail.
0: How do people generally find out about your museum?
3: Well, we're listed in um, the state tourism guides, and um, AAA magazine usually does a, an article on us every year. We also have an escape room, which brings uh, quite a few people in the door just to play the game. And once they're in, in the museum, they get an appreciation for what we have there.
0: Who would you say your primary visitor is? Who seeks you out? Who wants to see locks?
3: Uh, probably collectors and other people that have had maybe a grandparent or something who worked in the lock industry.
0: Yeah, no doubt. A lot of interesting history. A lot of people wouldn't know that Connecticut has such a rich history in lock making.
3: Yes, it was, actually, because the, there was quite a few lock companies in Connecticut. The biggest ones were Corbin and Russ one in New Britain. Eagle was in Terryville. Yale was in Stanford. Sargent was in New Haven. Um, But there was a lot. There was was a Norwich Lock Company. There was a Norwalk Lock Company. Branford Lock in Branford, Connecticut. So there there were quite a few. Mallory Wheeler. They made a, a large assortment of decorative hardware for doors, doorknobs, and escutcheons.
0: What's your favorite lock in the collection?
3: Well, we have a room in the museum. It's called the Keith Levine Room. And in that room, he's got some several early bank locks from England, Hobbes and uh, Brahma, Chubb, and there's a day, uh, day and Newell, which that was a New York lock. Because there was an interesting story in 1851, Alfred Hobbes went to England to the World Exposition there, and while he was there, he picked open two locks that everybody thought were unpickable, the Brahma lock and the Chubb lock, for which he received. A reward for opening those locks, and with those proceeds, I, I think he used it to uh, start his own company in England. And he produced some very nice bank locks.
0: Huh? And you have your own personal collection. It sounds like
3: I do. I I have, uh, you know, I have a, a, probably five or six H. C. Jones locks, which are they're pretty intricate in their own right. Uh, they're trick locks that uh, you have to know the tricks to be able to open up the lock.
0: When is your museum open? When can people come visit?
3: It's open May through October, Tuesday through Friday, 1.30 to 4.30, and weekends by appointment.
0: And is there a website?
3: There is a website, lockmuseumofamerica.org.
0: Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Tom Hennessy is the curator of the Lock Museum of America in Terryville, Connecticut. Once again, more information at lockmuseumofamerica.org. Now for a fun play on words, we shift our attention to the Locks of Love Foundation. Locks of Love is a nonprofit organization that provides hairpieces to children with hair loss due to medical conditions. I talked with Cozy Friedman, founder and CEO of Cozy's Cuts for Kids in New York City, on how and why Locks of Love became a part of her salon. Cozy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me.
4: My pleasure.
0: So first and foremost, how did you find out about the Locks of Love program?
4: Well, um, you know, I own Cozy's Cuts for Kids, which is a children's hair salon chain in New York City, and we were always talking about, um, you know, the hair that we cut off. And, you know, we have so much hair here because we got so much hair that we were always looking to say, what can we possibly do with this hair? So we did some research and we found out that there was this amazing program called Locks of Love. It wasn't exactly what we were looking for. We were looking to use the hair that we would sweep up off the floor. But Locks of Love is actually quite different from that. That you need hair that is nine inches or longer to use. And, you know, we found out about the program, which uh, is amazing because um, kids here can help other kids who need hair for various reasons, whether it is for, you know, if they're cancer patients or they have alopecia, which is a pretty common um, affliction or, you know, whatever. But, It's really, really nice to be able to see kids helping other kids.
0: So do clients need to agree to donate the here when they come in?
4: Well, we, you know, we have signage up um, here at the salon and also on our website. We try to really educate our clientele because you would be amazed how many parents and how many kids are looking to help other people and, and really find a way to make a difference. And kids are interested in learning. They grow out their hair specifically for this. I mean, my niece just did it. My niece is six years old, and she started growing her hair when she was four and a half. And recently, we just cut off, you know, nine inches of hair. So, you know, they they do it. They do it with a purpose. And it's a really big deal because, you know, think about if you have such long hair and then all of a sudden you cut it off and it's short it's it's really a big deal, and it feels like you are you are giving a lot, and it's really, really heartwarming to see.
0: So what are these kids telling you, knowing that they're helping other kids with their hair?
4: You, you know, picture this. Picture a, a young girl who's been, and we've done it also with boys, by the way. Um, we've done it with, with boys and girls, predominantly girls, but picture that you're growing your hair for, you know, a year, two years, however long it takes you. And then you come in to get it cut. And oftentimes the children feel a little conflicted because now they, there is, the you know, is the day and they're really giving a piece of themselves. And sometimes they're a little bit teary when they do it, but they're always, they're so proud. And we've made up a special diploma and we make a really big deal out of it. And we give them an award for you know making this donation, and it's such a beautiful feel-good moment. You you can't believe how good the kids feel and the parents feel for instilling this in their children. It's it's a beautiful thing.
0: How long have you been part of the program now?
4: Well, we've been in business for twenty five years, and we probably launched it twenty four years ago. Wow! So you know the kids come in and we'll we cut the hair. And we'll take care of everything. We send it over to Locks of Love. We give the kids, you know, the diploma, the award. And, you know, it's very easy um, to for us to take care of it for them. So we've donated lots and lots of hair over the years.
0: Yeah, you say in your LinkedIn page that you've given over a million haircuts. Now, that's a lot of hair.
4: Yes, it's a lot of hair. Obviously, not all of those haircuts go to Locks of Love. You know, they're the special ones that come in as and designate it. But, you know, 24 years worth of lots of love donations definitely adds up.
0: So what inspired you, Cozy, to open up your own salon, Cozy's Cuts for
4: Kids? So, you know, it's funny because when I did it so long ago, I wasn't married. I didn't have any children yet. And I, um, you know, had heard a story. A friend of mine told me how she took her nephew to get his hair cut at her adult salon And the little boy was scared and he started to cry and the salon owner, you know, very nicely asked them to leave because, you know, if you're at an adult salon, the last thing a client wants is to hear a crying baby, you know. And so when she told me the story, I was thinking, about. I said, well, you know, why didn't you just take him to a place for kids? And she said, I don't think there is one. And so I sort of described that as my aha moment where I'm like, really, there's no place for a kid's haircut? So I actually um, started to do some research, and I realized, wow, there really is no place for a kid's haircut. So I um, actually quit my job. I worked in uh, fashion, and I had a great job. Actually, was my mother was like, what? What are you doing? (laughs) But I quit my job. I went to barber school. I wrote a business plan. I worked in all different children's businesses to really learn about kids because I didn't know a thing about kids, number one. And as I said, I didn't you know, have kids. Um, and so it actually took me two years to find a landlord that would rent me a space because You know, people didn't understand what a kid's hair salon was back in those days. I mean, now you see them around. But in those days, you you know, there just was no such thing. And, uh, you know, the landlords just really didn't have any confidence that this was an actual concept that would work. So but I found a landlord and I opened my first location on Madison Avenue um, on the Upper East Side in 1994. And we literally had a line out the door on our first day that we opened. It was literally, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> and, it, you know, it was like as if we always existed once we opened. And, you know, I opened more locations very quickly because we were so busy. And, you know, I didn't know when I opened that we were going to have movie stars as clients and, you know, and these as packed you know for instance when i opened my first salon i didn't even build out a waiting area because it never occurred to me that anyone would wait for mm. a haircut and i mean we were packed from the beginning and you know obviously we opened more locations how many and, do you have now well we've we've been uh sort of transitioning right now we just have the one flagship on the upper east side but we've had um as many as 3 and um you know we'll we'll see what's next
0: so what would you say is the key to making getting a haircut a pleasurable a non-threatening experience for a kid
4: i can say it in three words distraction 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 <laughs> 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 so you know when the kids come in here you know we're not just a kids haircutting salon we're also a toy store as well when the kids come in here, they immediately feel comfortable because they're surrounded by toys and balloons and things like that. Um, But in all the cutting stations, we have little car chairs for the kids to sit in. Uh, We have TVs, you know, flat screen TVs. We have video games, videos, so they can pick what they want to watch, whatever movie, whatever video. Um, They can play a video game. We have someone on staff whose her job literally is just to help out So she would sing a song or blow bubbles, you know, if a child is feeling uncomfortable. Um, And I think, you know, really importantly is that our staff is so super experienced at not just cutting hair, but cutting kids' hair. And, you know, like I said, we're going on our 25th year right now. I have some of our stylists have been with me since the day we opened. I mean, they have been doing, you know, hundreds of thousands of haircuts over the years. And so, you know, you have a combination of a fantastic stylist that really understands kids and parents and can really help out, as well as the surroundings that are just so comforting and fun. And, you know, that's really what we're all about. It's a, it's a winning combination.
0: Are you primarily catering to the neighborhood or are people coming to you because they know about Locks of Love? They want to take part in that aspect of all of this as well.
4: It's both. It's all. I mean, we have people that, you know, email us from all over the world. I'll be in New York. I'd like to make an appointment for my child's haircut. Uh, we definitely have, you know, lots and lots and lots of locals. We're big in the tri-state area, um, so really all of the above. We do other things here as well as, you know, besides the toy store, we do um, updos and braids, and we have a braid bar and a blow bar. So if you had a special occasion, we're here for you. We do birthday parties. We we we're fun. It's a, a fun place.
0: Gosey, thanks so much for your time.
4: Thank you very much. You can
0: learn more about the Locks of Love Foundation at locksoflove.org. You can find Cozy at cozycutsforkids.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Caroline Rotante
4: and Julia Seabode. And thank you so much for listening.